Happy Monday. We've got to talk weather, which we will. Don't worry, we'll get all the details, all the latest models. What's your drive home going to be like? How blowy and snowy is it going to get? How about temperatures this week? How cold are they going to be? Cold enough for you? It is already. You won't have to even ask that. Everyone will just know. Yeah, it's really cold. So, we'll get to that. Why did a deer get into a building at Western? Why? Is it because it's so cold that animals are saying, forget this. You know what? You humans, you're hogging the indoors. I'm going inside. We'll have to find that out. We'll do it in about 12 minutes from now. We will talk with a pilot whose job it can be, not always, but can be, to fly one of the snowbirds. How many G's do they pull in some of the maneuvers that they do? When you do a loop-de-loop, what does that actually feel like? Is there a risk of losing consciousness? We'll ask that in about a half hour from now. Abigail Beeman, who is our Ottawa Bureau Chief with Global News, had a chance to speak with London Mayor Ed Holder, who had a chance to speak with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And you know what they talked about. I know people have been calling out, especially on our Facebook page on 980 CFPL, to have him talk about housing. Yes, that is a big issue. Absolutely. I don't think that's what they talked about predominantly. Whether they worked it in, don't know. But definitely contracts were talked about. Saudi Arabia, that was talked about. So you'll hear about that. And we will speak one-on-one with someone who soaked in the entire NHL All-Star experience. And we'll find out what that was like in San Jose over the weekend. Do the guys actually want to be there? It used to be if you got invited to the All-Star game, if you were named an All-Star, that was an honor. But that was before people had enough money to rent cabanas on beaches in really warm places. That's tough. You're going in, you're shaking hands, you're kissing babies, you're smiling with gritty. And everybody else that you know is on a cabana on a beach having a good time. See? It's a little different now. Yeah, but it's the all Yeah. Yeah. Just give me the certificate. That's all. That's all I need. You know how things happen in life and they put some things into perspective? I just walked down the hall with one of my favorite people in this world, Kent Guy, Director of Promotions and New Media here at Chorus Entertainment. And Kent said, I've got to show you something. And I thought, wow, okay, I'm ready. And he said, it's a picture. All right. I was still ready. And then he showed me the picture. I used to work with Kent's dad once upon a time. And during that time, he celebrated his 30th anniversary in broadcasting. And I guess, and I don't even necessarily remember this, but we got a card or we got a plaque made or something like that. I didn't. I'm not very good at doing things like that. Somebody did. But the entire staff signed it because everybody loved Kent Guy. So, yeah, you want to sign this? Absolutely, I want to sign that. He showed me what I wrote Kent was, or uh, sorry, Jeff was celebrating his 30th year in broadcasting. And so I wrote down, you have been employed longer than I have been alive. Ha ha ha, or whatever I finished it off with. And that's just a smart ass kid remark. But I just made the rest of the walk down the hall, went through the door back into our studios, and was doing some math. I started working in this industry when I was 15. I've now hit 30 years in the industry. And I think as I look around, most of the people I'm working with could write down 
on my little card or my little plaque, uh, you've been working longer than I've been alive. Ha ha ha. I'm sure they would think of something far more creative and far funnier than that, but it could happen. Where has the time gone? Blink of an eye. I was writing that yesterday, and today I am that. That's what happens in this life, doesn't it? Wild. Absolutely wild. I've also been listening to a podcast about how we're really messing up this world and all of the ways it could end. So maybe I've got to, you know, maybe I've got to take a sunnier outlook on this. I think I'll take a rest on that podcast just for a little while. So lots to do on the show today, but we will begin talking about the weather and taking a look at what the drive home could be like because we have been warned over and over that we have some nasty stuff coming and even though it's it's not freezing rain at the moment or sleet we're talking about snow and blowing snow and difficult drives home so that's where we are going to begin and we will do that in just a moment we'll take a quick break this is london live on global news radio 980 cfpl Oh, the fun that is winter driving. You ready for this? I don't know if we're ready for this. Hopefully we're ready for this. We haven't had much practice this winter. Have we gone through the time when everybody forgets how to drive when the snow flies? I think we had we had one of those. Because remember how clogged all of the main arteries were? Wellington and Adelaide and Wonderland Road. It's clogged anyway. Drop a snowflake on it and things get worse. So, yeah, we, we had that already, right? We, we remember how to drive once winter arrives. Well, how wintry is it going to get? Joining us right now is our very good friend and chief meteorologist for Global News, Anthony Farnell. Anthony, there's the question. For London, Ontario, and I know you deal with every little nook and cranny of this country from coast to coast, what are we going to get? Well, you guys, I mean, there's already been a little bit of snow. We're getting a break now, but uh, unfortunately for that afternoon commute, it is going to pick up rather quickly. And I do think this is a 10 to 15 centimeter storm, maybe a bit more in areas, maybe a little bit less. But uh, overall, the fact that it's coming in a short period of time and it will impact the commute, that's why uh, it is making headlines uh, right across the province, the fact that there's a snow and then the extreme cold coming behind it. Now, on the weekend, the stuff that fell was nice and light, and you just kind of went out in the morning and went, and it blew right off your driveway. Hardly even had to shovel it. Do we know what kind of snow is going to fall today? Well, it is a more complicated uh, scenario because right now it's still minus 11. The wind chill about minus 22. So it, it is cold, and that means it's uh, mostly a light, fluffy snow that's expected to start. But as this system approaches, it's going to be moving directly overhead. So there is a two-hour window where that temperature could go up to zero, maybe plus one. There may be a brief period of ice pellets or even uh, some drizzle. So uh, that's why we're expecting some wet snow near the end of this, which is uh, just after midnight. And then it's going to wrap up rather quickly, and uh, it'll be all gone by uh, by tomorrow morning's commute. Okay, that's at least good. Anthony Farrell joining us from Global News as we talk about the storm that is on its way. So 10 to 15 centimeters, you suggested maybe some mixed precipitation through part of it. Do we know how fast it is moving? Could it get stuck at all? 
Uh, it's, it's not going to get stuck. It's uh, Right now in Michigan, they're already reporting a similar amount. In fact, some places already up to about 20 centimeters, and that's that fluff factor playing a role where the fluffier the snow with even a weaker system like we had over the weekend, you end up seeing a little bit more than you'd expect. So that is a possibility. There's uh, no big changes that we're anticipating. The, the only concern is if we don't go above freezing, if we don't get up close to that zero mark, Come Tuesday, when the Arctic air moves back in and the winds pick up about 50 kilometers per hour, that'll create a lot more blowing snow when you don't have that crust on top. And uh, the cold that's coming, this is the, the full polar vortex. You, you may have heard us talking about it, uh, but uh, places through the Midwest are challenging some all-time record lows, and some of those stations go back 100 to 200 years. So this is some, some real-deal cold that's, uh, that's coming into the pattern. Now, is it kind of a little spike of cold, and then it ships itself on out? Yeah, it, it's basically uh, going to rotate in, and then once it pulls back out towards Hudson Bay by this weekend, uh, it's going to take it's a compact little... Uh, cold pocket so it's going to take all that cold with it and we're going to be back up above freezing in, in fact london has a shot at reaching seven or eight degrees coming up this weekend with rain so uh just some some crazy swings and i know pothole season is is coming up upon us and it's going to start early with uh, with a pattern like this anthony we really appreciate you joining us any idea on the rest of the long term could february stay around seven degrees the rest of the way or is winter still kind of there <laughs> That would be nice. I, I do see more uh, back and forth, uh, even though the cold uh, is going to escape us for a few days this weekend. The overall pattern, the big picture, looking around the globe, the jet stream, the, the ocean temperatures, the fact that there's a weak El Nino, all of that still is pointing to cold lasting through February and likely into March as well. So yes, there will be some swings, some moments where it maybe feels like spring and the snow starts melting, but I think overall the signal is uh, continuing cold uh, through at least February. Anthony, thanks so much for the time today. All right, enjoy the snow. Global News Chief Meteorologist Anthony Farnell. We can enjoy the snow, right? Right? Do take it easy on the drive. We will keep you up to date on any traffic snarls. Please, if you happen to see anything, let us know, even if it happens before that drive home starts, and we'll make sure and pass it along. And it's just a matter of reminding ourselves that, yeah, you do have to go slow when you see snow. Sergeant Dave Rector, who's now retired from the OPP, he always had that line, and it always blew his mind that no matter how many times he would say it, no matter how many times we got the bad weather, you'd still have people going far too fast for conditions and creating problems for police officers out on the roads. They don't need to put themselves in danger on the side of the road because you've gone too fast and spun out into a ditch. They don't need that. They've got other things to deal with. So here's hoping the drive home today is better. But, you know, I, uh, I'll believe it when I see it. Kind of like if there was a deer inside a building. Yeah, that doesn't happen. I'd believe that when I saw it. I wouldn't, be- wouldn't believe that. A deer would get inside a building, would, would it? Joining us right now is Brian Salt from Salt Haven. Brian... There's no deer inside a building. That doesn't happen, right? <laughs> well, you wouldn't think so, Mike, but it does every now and then. Okay. Uh, this weekend, for instance, if I'm just to pull a, a time just just out of my pocket here, this weekend, did we have any deer inside any buildings in London, Ontario? We did indeed. Did we? Oh, okay. Well, then uh, I guess I, I have to believe it. 
how exactly does a deer get inside a building? Well, we know how he got in, why he went in is a real question. He, uh, or she, at least, this was a doe, female deer, and she, uh, she ran headlong into this window in an office on the ground floor at Sogging Maitland at UWL. Now, this glass is really thick. This is about a 200, maybe even a 250-pound doe, so a big deer, and she just carved a hole right in this glass that uh, allowed her in. She made a mess of that office, I'm going to tell you. Now, it was really something else. We all know that the nickname for Soggy and Maitland is the zoo, so it, maybe it makes sense. Yeah. Animal house, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, you know, she got in there and um, kind of rambled around trying to stand up. The floors are, are very slippery, of course, and with those hooves, that are like uh, skate blades, uh, they uh, they just don't stand up very well on that. And so she was sliding and falling and, and made her way into a back corner hallway in this office. And um, it took us about, it took us about a good 45 minutes to just slowly, we use the same method as we do with training birds of prey and we let them make the choices. We watch their body language. We let them tell us how comfortable they are with us getting close until finally uh, we were able to uh, get right up close to her. We had been called out uh, while we were on the road, so we didn't have any equipment for this. But Animal Care Center was there, London Animal Care Center, and they had a... uh, But the only thing they had that might work was a rabies pole, a loop pole. So we had to get close enough to her to gently slip that over her head and uh, and then the only way to get her out was to drag her out on her stomach because every time she tried to stand up, she was slipping, and we were worried about her fracturing a leg or a hip in that process. But the final result, yep, we got her out, and uh, she had lost some blood, but they were superficial cuts for the most part, and uh, she bounded away as soon as we got her out past the loading dock, and uh, which was a good indication to us that she hadn't been seriously injured. But then the cleanup process was uh, the the human uh, fatality part of it all. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. We're talking with Brian Salt from Salt Haven about a deer that actually got into Saugeen Maitland, a residence at Western University. And then once it gets in, as Brian describes, very difficult to get an animal to understand how to get out, especially if it's having trouble moving around. Tell us a little bit more about how you look at the body language of an animal and, and kind of let it make those choices. What are you looking for? Well, we watch the ears. Their ears are like big radar scoops, you know, and they're very sensitive. Uh, they, they start to twitch a little ways. They're starting to look for a way out of the situation, so their eyes are moving back and forth. Their ears are moving back and forth, and that's an indication that I'm not really comfortable with this at this moment, so we just back off. Once they realize that we're going to back off whenever they're feeling uncomfortable, they start getting the idea that they have control. They're the ones making the decision. So in essence, they're telling us when it's okay to get closer. We are talking with Brian Salt of Salt Haven, and then when they do indicate, like you say, you can't just really grab a deer and and lead it on out. If it's a bird of prey that can fly, what are you Mm -hmm. looking to do in order to show it the way out? Well, a lot of the birds of prey that we're rescuing is... uh I mean, they are—they have fractured wings or legs or whatever. So they're—they're they're 
immobilized to begin with. And the, the biggest thing there is just to get in quickly and get them before they do any more damage to the fracture site. But in the case of, you know, when we're working with our, uh, our education animals and we're training behaviors into them, they're not wild. They are, you know, they're with Salt Haven for, for good. Uh, we're training behaviors into them. We allow them to make the choices. When we go to education programs, if they don't want to go, we don't compel them to go. We let them make the choice, and that builds a stronger relationship between the trainer and the animal. Brian, one last thing. We're talking with Brian Salt from Salt Haven. When we're talking about animals, you said the motivation is obviously difficult to find. A deer runs through a window. Who knows why that would happen? But are animals actually looking to get to warmer places when it gets really cold as it has been and as it will be for the next few days? Or are they conditioned to deal with this kind of cold? You know, animals really, you know, it, when it's extremely cold for long periods of time, they do, they are uncomfortable. There's no doubt about that. But, I, I, you know, I don't think a deer would be motivated to try to bust through glass to get <laughs> to get into a warm place. I think this was more of something maybe he had come down, had been chased or spooked, and uh, was just looking for a way out. Wow. Well, you ultimately helped the deer to find the way out, and hopefully the cleanup doesn't take too, too long and the reparations don't take too, too long at Western. Brian, job well done once again. Thanks so much for the time. You're welcome, Mike. That is Brian Salt from Salt Haven. Because deer don't wind up in buildings until they do. And, hey, that's a, that's a great lesson to everybody. We always try to personify animals. So, you know, it's your instinct to talk calmly to them. Don't worry. We'll get you out of here, little buddy. They have no idea what you're talking about. In fact, you're probably scaring them in doing that. But following those signs, letting the animal make the decision that's why Brian Salt is very good at what he does, because the rest of us, yeah, don't, hey, I'll just talk to my cat. My cat understands what's good. No, your cat doesn't understand. The dog doesn't understand. They get freaked out about stuff. So, always interesting, talking with Brian Salt. We are going to talk with Captain Robbie Hindle of Canadian Forces 431 Air Demonstration Squadron, because the snowbirds are going to be in town, and in fact... You could say some of the snowbird pilots are in town right now. And we'll talk about some of the things you have to be very aware of when you are flying a plane like that. This is not easy stuff. We're going to get inside the head of a snowbird pilot on London Live after Jacqueline LaBelle and News. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Ever flown... In a loop-de-loop? Ever flown in formation? Most people cannot check those boxes. Doesn't matter what kind of bucket list you might have. Doing a loop-de-loop, doing other kinds of maneuvers in the air, in a small fighter jet. Yeah, that that takes a lot of work uh, in order to be able to do that. That takes... A lot of skill in order to be able to do that, and it's usually not something that just kind of happens. It's not like visiting the Grand Canyon. Ever visited the Grand Canyon? Oh, sure, yes. Not the same thing. So, we get an opportunity right now to find out more about this, more about flying in formation, more about flying different maneuvers in the air, because joining us is Captain Robbie Hindle, who is a graduate of Western University and also a pilot 
in the Canadian Forces 431 Air Demonstration Squadron, and that does mean snowbirds. He joins us now. Captain Handel, how are things? I am doing great. How about yourself? Not too bad. Now, when we do hear Canadian Forces 431 Air Demonstration Squadron, is that the official name for the Snowbirds, or could this be any number of things? That is our uh, official squadron title, and then we are affectionately known as the uh, Snowbirds around the world. When did you first find that one out? Did you know that just because you've been involved in aeronautics for a while, or is that something that you find out kind of when you, you become a Snowbird pilot? That is something that I found out uh, probably when I joined the military. You, you pretty quickly learn all the squadron numbers. Well, let's talk a little bit about what made you want to even do something like this. Was it a, a lifelong dream? Was it something that kind of happened? Where did it begin? So for me, unlike uh, most, uh, especially folks on the team, uh, it's been their lifelong dream. I was at Western thinking I was going to uh, try and go to medical school, had an epiphany one day and decided to, uh, to join the Air Force. So I was about 21 when I joined up. So, wait a minute, an epiphany. Was that just, yeah, you know, today I'm going to go and do this, and then you followed through on this? Uh, for the most part. So I happened to see an advertisement, uh, went down to the recruiting center, got a bit of information, uh, and I haven't really looked back. And, and right now, as far as I'm concerned, I think I have one of the best jobs in the world. Let's talk about a, a day-to-day or a day in the life of Captain Robbie Hindle as a member of the 431 Air Demonstration Squadron. What does that entail? Uh, it's, it's different depending on what time of year you're talking about. So in the winter time, uh, it's all prep for the next show season. So we're either, uh, doing planning, working with air show committees, uh, of course, lots of flying practice, uh, in the summertime, it's typically, uh, wake up, meet the public, brief, fly a show, debrief and, uh, and kind of rinse and repeat all summer. And in terms of doing that, I mean, you just talk about it as if, ah, you know, we just, we do a show. A lot of people have seen what you do in shows. How difficult is it to do what you do in flying in tandem and doing the maneuvers that you do? So the maneuvers that we do, um, it is difficult. It's challenging. Uh, every, every pilot on the team is an experienced Air Force pilot, but it, it all starts with baby steps. So in, in the military, when you go through your flight training, we all do a little bit of uh, formation flying. But once uh, members join the team, we'll try and fly twice a day every day for about six months leading up to, uh, up to the season. And how long would one of those flights last? Typical flight's about an hour. Okay. And are you practicing basically the whole time? For the most part, yeah. So you'll uh, every year we typically change out about half the team members. So... The, uh, the new members and the, the experienced members will, will usually fly together at the start. Uh, we'll go up and you're, you know, formation flying from day one, and it's just building all those skills to be able to, do, uh, to work up to flying a full show. Well, you are going to be a part of Air Show London, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But we're looking right now at a forecast that says, uh-oh, bad weather is coming. For pilots, once you get above the clouds, there isn't usually any weather to deal with. Can you be influenced by weather? Can you have flights canceled because of weather? Uh, of course. And, and during the air show season, unfortunately, we do uh, tend to lose a few shows every summer, usually due to, uh, due to thunderstorms. But even at Moose Jaw, when we're training uh, in the winter, as you alluded to, most of the days, it's a sunny day above the clouds, and we can typically get our training in. That's not bad. You would see the sun almost every day, then. It's very nice. Unless it's some really bad weather with uh, some uh, high cloud tops, it's, uh, it's always a sunny day up there. 
Man, we're talking with Captain Robbie Hindle from Canadian Forces 431 Air Demonstration Squadron. We know them as the Snowbirds. First time you ever pulled a loop-de-loop, what was that like? Uh, it's a very interesting feeling being able to look up at the ground. Uh, <laughs> it's basically the only way I can describe it. And in terms of G-forces, we have to realize that you're kind of flying against what gravity wants to allow you to do. You're, you're kind of defeating gravity every time you do what you do. Is there ever a concern that the G-forces are going to get to you enough where you can't do your job? So that's another thing that we practice, and, and that's, uh, that's sort of a learned skill right from day one uh, when folks join the Air Force and go through flight training. So it's a lot of uh, squeezing muscles in your legs and your abdomen and, and working against the G to make sure you can still uh, function while you're flying. So why do you have to squeeze muscles in your legs and your abdomen? So if you can imagine your body is like a, a tube of water, so gravity is always trying to pull you know, your, your blood down to your feet. So when you're flying, pulling Gs, it's uh, pulling all that blood towards your feet, essentially. So the only way to keep it in your head is by uh, flexing all of your muscles and uh, and doing some uh, interesting breathing techniques. Really? And that's something that you obviously have to master before you can do things like this. What What is it like to do that? How tough is it to do that? Uh, it becomes very routine. Uh, it, it's a lot of work, and, you know, in a, on a hot summer day, you, you end up pretty sweaty after flying a show, but it's something that we do. We go down to uh, Toronto. There's a unit there, and we'll sit in a centrifuge, and they'll spin you around, and we do uh, a whole lot of training for that as well. People tend to look for firefighters for great abs. I'm thinking pilots could rival them. Uh, some of us, you know, we like to stay in shape. <laughs> we're talking with <laughs> Captain Robbie Endel, and we're talking about Airshow London. We do have the Snowbirds in town today, and you're going to actually – be able to talk with or have talked with some students at Western, being able to to do that and, and tell them what it's like, because we've got a, a great aviation program at Western. What's that part of your job like? That is probably my favorite part of the job is being able to connect with people, especially young people, um, and just let them know about this amazing industry. And it's not just you know, of course, I, I like to promote the, the military aviation side of things, but aviation is uh, is growing so much, and to be able to try and inspire people and just interact with uh, with folks and talk about something that, you know, I have uh, found to be a passion of mine. You said it, Captain Hindle, once a snowbird, not always a snowbird, because you do change the crew on a pretty regular basis. What is the other thing that you're going to be moving to maybe after this? So after this, I'm not sure. I was a uh, I was a flight instructor in Moose Jaw before, so I may end up doing that, or I could uh, be flying something totally different. But uh, as long as I'm still in the air, I'll be a happy man. It doesn't matter whether it's a jet or a bigger craft. Uh, no, it'd be nice to do uh, do something new and, and a new challenge. So if it's a big airplane, then it's uh, just another way to see the world. People will wonder: Are you ever afraid to do what you do? Nope, we fly in very well-maintained airplanes, um, and we go through a whole lot of training. So it's, uh, you know, to say you're not a little nervous uh, on the day-to-day would be a lie, but, um, but you know, training kicks in, training takes over, and, uh, and you get to go up and enjoy it. Nerves are good, right? You're paying attention that way. Exactly. All right. Well, it's been great having you. I know that you've got a lot of people to talk to, so Captain Hindle, thanks for taking some time for us. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me, and I hope to see everybody uh, this September here at Airshow London. September 13th to the 15th, Airshow London is coming. Captain Hindle, enjoy your time back in London.
Thank you very much. Have a great day. That is Captain Robbie Hindle from Canadian Forces 431 Air Demonstration Squadron. They are the Snowbirds. That is their official name. And, yeah, they are going to be a part of Airshow London September 13th to the 15th. And we can almost guarantee that it will not be minus 11 with a chance of nasty flurries and other mixed precipitation right around then. So that gives us something to look forward to, right? Get your tickets as soon as you can. In fact, you can go to airshowlondon.com right now. Remember, kids 12 and under are free. And it doesn't matter if you've seen the Snowbirds once, three times, ten times, whether you've flown with them. It's just fun to watch what they do and the rest of the air show. So that's coming up in September. We'll look forward to it. I do see a flake fluttering to the ground right now. This is Global News Radio 980 CFBL. If you do get a chance to fly in a jet one day, just say yes. Just say absolutely. I will do that. When the air show came to town years ago, I had a chance to do it, not with the Snowbirds, but with a guy named Big Dog. Well, that was his that was his call sign, Big Dog. And you don't realize how fast you're moving. And I don't know, I may have told this before, but if you're up in the air, we took off in Centralia and I had just met my wife, and she was still getting used to some of the things that you got to do, but air shows would come in, and they would do promotions every once in a while where they would take an announcer up in the air, and then the announcer comes down, they talk about what it was like, and look at this, some 15, 16 years later, they're still talking about it. But we were up in the air, and uh, I guess the the plane came in at first, and she looks up and she says, you're not going to be doing what that guy's doing right now, because he came in and, and did a whole lot of maneuvers. And I said, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. I was just told to kind of show up and get in the plane. And she said, no, like this, you, you can't do that. Look what he's doing. He's dipping and diving. And so we take off and he goes, you like rides? And I said, yeah, I don't mind rides. Good. And so off we went and we're doing all these moves. And he said, look down. And I looked down and he goes, that's Port Stanley. And then all of a sudden we went, made all these moves. He goes, look down. Know what that is? And I thought, Port Stanley? Grand Bend. And it had been like 10 seconds. It was absolutely wild how quickly you moved and the stuff that you went through. But it was a blast. If you get a chance to do it, I would highly recommend it. Interesting study at globalnews.ca that you can check out. They polled 1,000 parents. And these parents had children between the ages of 5 and 12. And what they did was they quizzed them on folklore strategies. So one of the things, and you've probably heard this forever, your mom, your grandmother, your aunt, whoever it was, would always look at you after you'd had a shower or a bath and you were about to head outside and they would say, Oh, what are you doing? What? You're going outside with wet hair. You'll catch your death of a cold. Remember when that was a line? Your death of a cold. Well, they kind of quizzed parents on things like that. 52% of parents still tell their kids not to go outside with wet hair. Or 48% of parents say they encourage their kids in the winter to spend more time indoors to avoid catching a cold. And then... 
the study, and it's a great read. So if you get a chance to do that, you can either go to 980cfpl.ca or you can go to globalnews.ca or you can basically Google going outside with wet hair will not lead to a cold because they talk with clinical researchers and they will say, I have no idea where this comes from, but a lot of the folklore that goes along with how you catch a cold came along before germ theory and they get passed down and people start believing it and then you know you you get a cold from passing around a virus how do you do that well somebody coughs on you somebody sneezes on you somebody uses the same keyboard you do and they cough and sneeze on it and then all of a sudden you get an itch on your nose you wipe your nose next thing you know you've got a cold it has nothing to do with actually going outside with things like wet hair In fact, there are a lot of viruses that don't tend to enjoy those sorts of conditions. But 52% of parents still tell their kids, don't go outside with wet hair. As a kid, you want to. Your hair freezes. It's kind of a neat experience. Before we take a break, let's go to the phones. Bob, what do you have for us? Yeah, Mike, hey, look, I heard you talking about some uh, deer story there, and I got it sparked my memory on a couple of deer sto- or a couple of animal encounters. Okay, well, hang on. Let me recap what happened for anybody who wasn't joining us. Uh, we had a deer that actually went into the zoo in London, otherwise known as Soggy and Maitland, the residence on the campus at Western, and it was inside, and Brian Salt and Salthaven were able to get this deer to come out, but it had gone inside. Have you ever wakened with a deer inside your house? Pretty darn close. Uh, this is when I lived up in northwestern Ontario one winter evening. We had, on the, out, the entrance out the back door, we, it was an enclosed area. So I had, you know, taken the kitchen garbage out. I opened the door, the, the main door, and I'll go and open the screen door, and I look, and the light wasn't on, but I see this figure. I thought somebody was standing at the door. Well, when I looked a little closer, it was a deer standing just in the walkway outside the back, facing right at the window. And I just kind of, I got startled, and what the heck? So I closed the door, I put on my jacket and boots, so I went around the house to the outside to come in from the back way of the deer, because I didn't want to confront it head on, because that could be dangerous. <laughs> so I walked out, and when I got, I had a flashlight, when I walked around the back side, and I shined it on the deer's hind quarters there, it, they were all chewed out. And I think the wolves got at it, right? Yeah. yeah so, so I called the MNR, and I had a friend of mine who was a conservation officer at that time. And they came over, and we landed up getting the deer. We started it from the from the inside of the house, and it turned around and went slid under a truck. And we had to put it down that night, unfortunately. But uh, that was kind of a, a little bit of a, a rude awakening when you open that door and you get this deer stare in your face. Another quick one was uh, uh, during one summer up there, we had a big outbreak of bears. This is going back, I think, around the mid-'90s. They stopped the, the spring bear hunt uh, in Ontario, and we just had an explosion of bears coming through the town. So uh, what happened was a friend of mine, his neighbor, one afternoon on the weekend, they were having a barbecue. I guess they were all down at the dock at the lake, and while they were down there, this bear lumbered up around the house, went through their screen door, went in the house, and completely just obliterated everything. And then somebody went up to the house to get something, I guess, noticed the screen door, uh, the screen was all broken in. And he got in the house, and I guess the bear 
must have heard something and it got startled and it went out the front window. It went right through the front pane window, a picture window of the house, and it just, you know, ran off. But, uh, yeah, this stuff happens out there. Absolutely. Bob, thanks for the call. All right, buddy. Thanks for the stories. Man, if you've had a deer, a bear, a raccoon, I used to love the commercial. Remember the commercial? Hey, come on in, kitty. And the woman, I think it was for eyeglasses, pretty sure it was, and she would open her screen door and the raccoon would come in. She thought it was the cat. Love commercials like that. Until, of course, I'm the guy letting the raccoon into the house. That'll happen someday, won't it? Yeah. Off the start of the show, I told the story of finding out that I had signed a card years ago. Hey, happy 30th anniversary at work. You've been working longer than I've been alive. Ha ha ha. Time passes quickly. Very quickly. Let's take a break. We'll tell you what's still to come on London Live in a moment. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We're going to talk about opioids after 2 o'clock. We're going to look at the injection of opioids and the link to a significant increase in bacterial heart infections. So that's coming up. We are also going to take you to Ottawa because London Mayor Ed Holder is still booked up with interviews. Uh, Hopefully we'll be able to talk with him either tomorrow on the Craig Needle Show or tomorrow on London Live. But our Ottawa Bureau Chief with Global News, Abigail Beeman, was able to speak with London Mayor Ed Holder. He had a sit-down with the Prime Minister. And as much as everybody's been calling for questions concerning housing and federal projects for housing... This was more about contracts with regard to Saudi Arabia and general dynamics. So we will take you to that particular conversation with Abigail Beeman and a couple of other reporters with London Mayor Ed Holder. And then John Mattis is just back from San Jose and the NHL All-Star Weekend. Do the players like it or don't they? And what is John going to take away from the NHL All-Star Weekend? We'll talk with him at about 2.40. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We are going to talk opioids in just a couple of minutes. I want to draw your attention to something that is worth the read. Ray Fisman and Michael Luca did a piece, and I think it was in The Atlantic, and it was on opioids, and their take on how the opioid crisis came to be. If you think back in time, in the music industry, they had a thing called payola. You know the stories of payola, right? Because you wanted to get your artist heard on the air. And so you would essentially bribe DJs. You had a DJ in a major market, you'd offer him money or drugs or whatever it took to get your artist played on the air. It's called payola. And that eventually was phased out. That's not the right way to get things done. But it did lead to a lot of artists being played on the radio. And it did lead probably to some success stories that may have never happened. Who knows? When we look at the opioid crisis, what these two authors of this article, Ray Fisman and Michael Luca have written about, is that the opioid crisis was created in a similar way. And this is according to them. But what they looked at was a number of pharmaceutical salespeople. And they said, you know, 
Back in the day, they would go around to different doctors and they would say, hey, how about you use this as a painkiller? And I'll leave you this pen right here. That's that's a token of my appreciation for you to at least consider using this opioid that I'm selling. Okay. Then all of a sudden, a pen wasn't enough. So maybe a gift certificate. Go to dinner with your wife. And then they realized, well, doctors are very, very busy. Some don't wind up going out for a lot of dinners. So you had pharmaceutical salespeople, again, according to Ray Fisman and Michael Luca, who would follow a doctor to a gas station and pump his gas or her gas for them in exchange for maybe a relationship and maybe them prescribing opioids. And from there... Things just got crazy. Vacations, you name it. But you see how that escalates? And that kind of introduced it into the population. That's their theory. Now, of course, there are other ways that it happened as well. Plus, we have had drugs within our midst for as long as we can remember, right? We have seen people wanting to use something as whether it's a painkiller or an hallucinogen or you name it. But... In order to look at the crisis right now, do we look at something like that? Maybe. But with that and the way that it exists comes a whole lot of other concerns, comes a whole lot of other things that can go on. And joining us right now from the Lawson Health Research Institute and Western University is someone who can talk about some concerns, the injection of opioids and a finding that they have come up with. Please welcome to London Live Dr. Michael Silverman, Associate Scientist at Lawson and Associate Professor at Schulich Medicine and Dentistry. Dr. Silverman, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. You took a look at a number of pieces of data. What exactly were you trying to find out? So there's been a a general impression that the uh, incidence, the number of new cases of infectious endocarditis, that's infections of the heart valve, has been rising. Uh, We've noticed it in in London, and we suspected that this was happening uh, elsewhere. And our impression was that this seemed to be rising as the number of people who use hydromorphone, um, particularly the long-acting hydromorphone for injection, um, was also increasing. So we thought that hydromorphone might be a particularly dangerous drug to inject because it's not easy to inject. It requires crushing of um, of beads that are within a capsule. So the ca- it comes in a capsule and you open it up and a bunch of beads fall out and people have to crush it and then add water to it and, and then s- suck it up into a syringe and inject it into their arm. But it leaves a whole bunch of extra drug in in a kind of slurry um, after after they do that. And so um, people save it for later, add more water and do it again. And it requires lots of touching uh, with your fingers of the, um, uh, of the material in order to make it. So we thought this would be particularly dangerous in terms of getting bacteria on something and then injecting it into your, into your veins. So we wondered whether the use of hydromorphone um, uh, might be associated with getting more um, uh, of this potentially deadly infection. And I emphasize about one in three people who get 
this heart valve infection from injecting drugs will die from it. Uh, that's with best possible therapy. So um, the, uh, what we found was that indeed the, a number of people using hydromorphone had increased. The percentage of total opioid prescriptions in the province that were hydromorphone increased. We thought initially, sorry? No, no, go we, ahead. We thought initially that this was because oxycodone long-acting, which is often called oxycontin, came off the market in the fourth quarter of 2011, and that all of a sudden hydromorphone would increase at that time. In fact, hydromorphone was increasing before that. Um, and, but we did find that hydromorphone, as hydromorphone use rose, uh, endocarditis did rise. And in fact, there's been an almost a threefold increase in hydromorphone, in, in, in endocarditis um, uh, incidence. And there's been a, an increasing use of hydromorphone where um, uh, years ago it was only 16% of all opioid prescriptions, and now it's over 50% of all opioid prescriptions are hydromorphone. Wow. Okay. So, and this is this is a very interesting topic in the way that we don't necessarily stop to think about what people may be using if they're using opioids. Like you say, OxyContin came off the market. There are other forms of Oxy that you can be prescribed. Now you're saying hydromorphone, and the number of prescriptions is increasing. Would these be prescriptions coming from physicians? So um, many of the prescriptions are coming from physicians. They may either be, you know, giving the prescription to someone who they don't think is injecting but may, um, may be injecting, or they may be giving it to someone else who is not injecting, who may be selling or diverting, or the medication may be stolen from somebody um, who, is, who is not injecting and taken by someone who is injecting for injection. Most people who get addicted to opiates often got their their first prescription because they had an injury and and got the opiates to try to help them deal with the pain and then became unfortunately addicted and then uh, and then as they become addicted, they need higher and higher doses and will sometimes feel that by mouth they can't get enough in and so start injecting to try to control the pain that's associated with with withdrawal. So people get into this vicious cycle. And so many people will be getting opiates because they're in pain, and they'll say to the physician they're in pain, and the physician often doesn't, isn't aware that the person is injecting. We've, as a society, we've become aware of the dangers of particular drugs, specifically fentanyl um, and, and, other, uh, and, and certain um, uh, drugs that are not made by the pharmaceutical industry but are on the, on, are on the street, like heroin, although some of the fentanyl is on the street also that's not from pharmaceutical sources, and the danger with overdose. We know certain opioids are really dangerous in terms of overdose. So a lot of physicians try to prescribe, trying to avoid those drugs that we know are dangerous because they could lead to overdose, and hydromorphone was thought to have a low likelihood of this. But what we're finding is when people do inject it, it may have a particularly high likelihood of causing a heart valve infection. Yeah. And, you know, if you die of a heart valve infection or you die of an overdose, you're still dead. And so if we need, it, you know, our ultimate goal is to prevent death and to prevent disability. And so we have to start thinking about, you know, the danger. These, dr these drugs may differ in terms of their danger when they're injected not, uh, on a different level. Not their, 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 their danger. Not only can they differ by their 
overdose per, uh, risk, they can differ by their risk of causing life-threatening infections. We're talking with Dr. Michael Silverman, associate scientist at Lawson Health Research Institute and an associate professor at the Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry. And if you're just joining us, Dr. Silverman has outlined how the the increase of the prescription of hydromorphone has gone from 16 percent to 53 percent between 2006 and 2015. And yet, if you are injecting hydromorphone, there's a lot of, as Dr. Silverman said, touching of the things that you are either making use to of or making use of uh, to inject or the uh, the substance that you are creating and with that there's a chance of infection if you get an infection like the one that you're describing a heart valve infection how serious an infection is that well it's terribly serious unfortunately we know from other studies that we recently published that a one in three people who get this infection will die from it on top of that, there's many more who can, lead, who can develop um, severe and, and sometimes permanent disability. So when the infection gets on the valve, pieces can break off and go up the arteries to the brain, cause a stroke, uh, can go to the spinal cord and cause para- uh, other forms of paralysis that can be permanent. It can lead to damage of the kidneys and, and lead people to have to be on dialysis. So people can be left unable to speak, unable to see, unable to move, with terrible disability even if they do survive. Many people need um, a heart surgery uh, when they get this infection because the valve is so damaged they need a new valve, and then that um, has its own risks and, and difficulties. So it's critical that people get access to um, a, a services to help them deal with their addiction, to try to prevent this from happening. And we're also trying to inform people who are in that spiral, unfortunately, of addiction and are injecting to at least try to reduce their risk. So clearly using um, uh, safe and, and clean, um, like a previously unused needles and, 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 and injecting equipment. And if they are saving some of the drug for later use, or even if they're making it for the first time, if it's hydromorphone, to what we call cook your wash. So we're encouraging people to use a cigarette lighter to heat up uh, the drug water preparation until it bubbles before they, before they draw it up into a syringe to reduce the number of bacteria and reduce the risk of getting heart valve infections. We also believe that this may reduce the likelihood of getting HIV. Obviously, the best way to prevent that is not to inject, but if someone is in that cycle and can't get out of it, then we're trying to reduce the risk by uh, what they call cook your wash, which is heating, heating the, uh, the, the, the fluid with the drug in it until it bubbles. Dr. Silverman, thank you for bringing this research into the public sphere. I hope it has the impact that it should. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you for your interest. That is Dr. Michael Silverman. Now, that's... See... We have spent so much time talking about safe injection sites or temporary overdose prevention sites or now permanent overdose prevention sites. Give it whatever name you want to. But how many times do we actually peel back enough of the layers? And I think maybe we need to do more of this. Why are opioids present to the extent that they are? And that's why I pointed to that article. And I did find it. And I will tweet it out and so that you can have a look at it. Again, it's written by Ray Fisman and Michael Luca, and it deals with a theory as to how opioids became so prevalent 
in our world. And you hear Dr. Silverman talking about the cycle that people get into. You think, well, yeah, it's intravenous drug users. Okay, well, kind of, kind of. How did they get to be intravenous drug users? And where are they getting the supply from? And what are they using? And in this case, you have certain opioids taken off the market, like OxyContin, and then doctors are looking, saying, okay, well, this one is apparently less likely to cause a lot of problems, so let's use hydromorphone. And prescriptions go from 16% all the way to 53% from 2006 to 2015. But hydromorphone, in order to create it and put it into an injectable form, it gets touched, it gets saved, it gets dirty. And because of that, we now have a new problem that we're seeing an increase in bacterial heart infections, which, as Dr. Silverman pointed to, can lead to kidney issues, can lead to stroke, can lead to all kinds of things, can lead to death. So thank you to Dr. Silverman for peeling back some of that. Let's take a break. Up next on London Live, we'll take you to Ottawa. Abigail Beeman, our Ottawa Bureau Chief, had a chance to talk with London Mayor Ed Holder about his meeting with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. We'll get you that next. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. You've been hearing all day about London Mayor Ed Holder being able to sit down with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to talk. There are big concerns. There are concerns that every municipality has, but in particular, there is a serious bit of concern in this area over the contract with General Dynamics or the contract that would affect General Dynamics and the contract with Saudi Arabia and dealings with Saudi Arabia. And Abigail Beeman, our Ottawa bureau chief, had an opportunity to talk with London Mayor Ed Holder following his meeting with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And the first thing she got to was General Dynamics and Saudi Arabia. What was your message to the Prime Minister about General Dynamics, and was that part of the reason why you called this meeting? Well, it was specifically in reference to uh, General Dynamics Land Systems Canada, and clearly uh, people are aware of the issues as it relates to the uh, LAV contract with Saudi Arabia, so that was the thoughtful discussion we had. Well, what did you tell the Prime Minister? Well, it was a shared discussion, and uh, it's it's interesting where we had certainly common uh, concerns was the issues around uh, the jobs. These are important jobs for London, our largest private employer in my city. City. And when you think of the spin-off jobs as well, so the impact of some 1,800 uh, uh, jobs in London, add another 1,800 to 2,000 jobs with the suppliers and others who are impacted by this, it's fairly dramatic uh, yeah, if, uh, if this uh, contract isn't fulfilled. The Prime Minister shared the same concerns. Did he offer any promises in terms of compensation or help if these jobs disappear? Here's, uh, here's what is important. Uh, what we did discuss uh, were issues around... Uh, the challenge is actually somewhat associated with the Saudi contract in that uh, uh, the, the Saudi payable component, the payables are, uh, aren't, aren't current and that certainly gives some, some cause uh, for concern, but that's an issue that they're dealing with. Uh, we, we touched on as well what the issues. What does that mean the payables Oh, uh, all that simply means is that, uh, and, and it, I think it's been fairly clear, the, uh, the Saudis' uh, uh, balance of payments with respect to work already completed isn't, uh, isn't paid yet. 
So that's one of the that's one of the concerns, and it's significant, but it is one of the issues. The second issue uh, we discussed were issues around human rights as well. But the fundamental issue that we talked about is how important those jobs were to preserve, be preserved in London, and ways that we might work uh, work. Uh, with the federal government with respect to that and uh, the, the Prime Minister I think was very very current on the file and knew the issues very clearly and uh, we uh, we're going to work together to uh, do what we can to preserve those jobs. But nothing concrete out of that? Well I think that was very concrete actually that uh, that dialogue uh, if you know politics and uh, certainly in my uh, in my experience as a former member of parliament as well I thought it was a very concrete and positive discussion and uh, the fact that the Prime Minister is uh, is mindful of this and has the it has the attention his attention clearly I think that was important. Sir, do you feel reassured that that contract will go forward uh, as as signed? Well look uh, I've always taken the position that uh, this contract is important uh, for the families of those employees of General Dynamics and for those affiliated companies that work with them. I'm very hopeful that that will be maintained. Can you tell us a little bit about what how the Saudis are, are short? Yeah, just just one, one last, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was wondering how the, how the Saudis are short. You talked about the payables. What, can you yeah. explain us that a little bit? Well, that's, uh, that's simply an issue that when, uh, as, as in any company, you, you, you do your billings and, uh, and uh, you expect payment for things in return. That, that, it's an issue from a timing standpoint right now. Uh, I've never known uh, in any dealings that, uh, that I'm aware of of companies with Saudi Arabia that that ultimately doesn't get resolved. But it certainly is one of the, the causes for concern right now because it impacts General Dynamics themselves because if they don't get paid for the work that they do. Having said that, I'm confident that they will be, uh, that will be resolved and we go forward. Did, he give, did the Prime Minister give you any sense of when they may make a decision? Uh, did he give you a sense of where they might be leaning on this? No, that wasn't, that wasn't the nature of the discussion, the issue of timing. The mm -hmm. issue was, uh, was more the awareness of, uh, of what was going on. So uh, the timing, I think this is a very fluid process right now. And uh, the Prime Minister was very concerned about the jobs in, in my city of London, as am I, as are uh, the, uh, the employees and their families that are impacted. This is dramatic and this is important. So at this point, there's been no uh, timeline asked nor given. And uh, we're just going to work together to see how we can best maintain those jobs here and in the city. Did you ask for the meeting? Excuse uh, me. Pardon me? Had you asked for the meeting? Yes, I did. Yep. Yep. Okay. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks very much. Yep. So that is London Mayor. Ed Holder earlier today, and the hope is that we can talk at length on the Craig Needle Show tomorrow with London Mayor Ed Holder, or perhaps even on London Live. As soon as we're able to do that, we will do it. And if it happens on the Craig Needle Show, I will be sure to at least play excerpts, if not uh, most of the interview. This is what I do like about the fact that Ed Holder is the mayor of London right now, that he does have the connections it takes to get in front of people who make decisions. He requested a meeting with the Prime Minister, and he got that meeting. It's not easy to do that. You realize there were a lot of other mayors who were around. I don't know how many, if any, requested meetings, but I would imagine one or two of them requested meetings, if not more. And this was the only meeting that was granted, as far as we know. That's what I like about Ed Holder being the mayor of London. He gets in front of the right people because of his experience. I think that's a very positive thing going forward. What you can do about this, here's the big deal. Saudi payables, not current. Pay your bill. That's essentially what the Canadian government is saying. Pay your bill. And there's, there's more to it than that. But pay your bill is a big issue right now. And if they can get that done 
here's hoping that they can have further dialogue because these jobs and certainly the spinoff jobs as well are vital. Let's take a break. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. NHL All-Star Weekend was held this weekend, and they always try different things. During media day on Thursday, fans could put on a headset and basically pick who they wanted to hear from. Okay, all right, that's that's one thing that I wouldn't expect to catch on. Something is going to be introduced next year that we're going to talk more about in just a little bit. We'll talk about the entire All-Star Weekend. i going to find out what Gritty's like when the cameras are off. Never seen Gritty, mascot of the Philadelphia Flyers, when the cameras are off. Well, we'll find out what he's like. But we are going to be talking with John Mattis, who is the national hockey writer for The Score. The thing that is going to be used next year by the National Hockey League is tracking technology. And this is something that is not new. So don't go thinking it's new. One of the first times this was shown off was actually at the 2014 Memorial Cup. And the 2014 Memorial Cup was held in London. And they had tracking technology, which you put basically either three cameras or the NHL will use 14 to 16 antenna up in the rafters. And what it does is it gives you all kinds of data. You wouldn't believe the data. How fast a player is skating, uh, how fast he's skating in the first period compared with the third period, how many times he goes offside. You get a heat map of where the player has been, and you get this enormous amount of data. So at the end of the game, you're just going through reams and whoa, like, I, what a, is this really helping? The National Hockey League is going to be making use of it. It's a neat thing for fans. I don't know how in-depth a lot of fans are going to get. Maybe this goes hand-in-hand with some of the gambling stuff that is going on, but it's one of the topics that we'll get to when we're joined by our next guest, John Mattis from The Score. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. This past weekend was NHL All-Star Weekend. Keep in mind that All-Star Weekend asks the best of the best to go to a location while the rest of the league gets a break. And you might think, oh, those poor hockey players. Yeah, okay, well, the NHL season is a grind. I know they make millions of dollars. It's a grind. It's nice to get a break. And the best of the best don't tend to get that break. They wind up at the All-Star festivities. And there are a lot of different things that they have to do. This was an interesting weekend for a few different reasons. And I think because the NHL kind of takes the focus away from three-on-three, and there were so many different stories coming out. The NHL did a very good job making this a weekend that was like a magazine. You just flip through it. Oh, well, there's the three-on-three. Oh, there's the skills tournament. Oh, there's this announcement. And I think they did a really good job not putting a focus on it in that way. Joining us right now is a guy who was there in San Jose, California, who can tell us all about it. In a first-person perspective, John Maddox is the national hockey writer for The Score. John, how are you doing? Back on Eastern time yet? <laughs> I am. I had a, a bit of a late arrival last night, but a nice sleep. And, uh, yeah, it was 
it was a, it was a good time in San Jose. I'd never been, so uh, new experiences all around. This is a little different because normally you would just be working to fly back today, and airports tend to be even busier. And who knows, you you may not have hit a connection along the way. What was it like to have things in prime time for the All Star Game? Anybody talk much about that? Not really. Uh, like in the lead up, a little bit because uh, you know it affects everyone's schedule, as you say, um, but. For the first time in at least a while, it might have been the first time ever. I don't, I don't have the uh, the records in front of me, but they decide to to have it Saturday prime time, which makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, I mean, I guess the only drawback of doing that is that everything gets pushed back a day, so you have the skills on Friday, which is nice. That's better than the you know probably the skills on Saturday night because you want to feature the game. Um, but then you know media day is, is on Thursday. Maybe that gets lost in the shuffle a little bit. So you know, there's pros and cons to to having uh, it set up this way. But at the end of the day, hockey is a, a Saturday night game, right? You know, everyone grows up with Hockey Night in Canada. People are programmed to tune into hockey on a Saturday night. So it kind of makes sense when you start connecting the dots. And uh, based on early uh, ratings, at least from NBC, that they, they were bragging about that on Twitter. So I guess it went well. Now, with the All-Star game that has now become the All-Star Weekend. It has always been an honor to be selected for this. In today's NHL, where there are a lot of demands and guys struggle to kind of get away from the 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week coverage, you have some guys who are able to go away, and then you have the All-Stars who come in and do a lot of you know meet-and-greets and things like that. What is it like for the players? Do they seem to be enjoying themselves? I think they do, but there's sort of an underlying feeling that they'd probably rather be elsewhere. Like it's, and and it's hard to sort of separate what you're seeing and what they're feeling on the inside. But my general take is that, you know, they're honored to be there. There's no doubt about that. Especially guys who've never been there, or a guy like I don't know, Keith Yandel, who's not necessarily a big star, and this is you know a feather in his cap. Um, I think that they they really. You know, they they like to be there, but at the same time, as you mentioned, like this is a 12 month sport. This is a sport that's very demanding, especially uh, with condensed schedules because of stuff like the All Star Game. Um, you know, it's designed to give everyone a break around this time. Yet the best players are don't have a break, or at least they have a a smaller break. They still have the bye week, obviously. Um, but you know, it's yeah, it's kind of somewhere in the middle. I'd say, like, happy to be there. You know, they're doing all their media, which, you know, it depends on the guy how much they like it. And they're obviously in a good mood. Um, they do some 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 meet and greets with fans at, a, at fan festivals and, and all that kind of stuff. Like, it's all very, you know, happy-go-lucky. But, you know, it, it, if, if, if you, you know, gave them um, truth serum, I'm sure some of them would say, I'd rather not be here. <laughs> They've got buddies in a cabana on a beach somewhere. That's uh, that's tough to say. Yeah, okay. Even even though you are in San Jose, it's tough to say, yeah, that cabana, that, that would have been nice for a few hours. We're talking with John Mattis, national hockey writer with the score. There were people who were very excited to be there, maybe even more excited than Keith Yandel. We had some female hockey players there, and Kendall Coyne has been given a, a real great you know, a, a real great following and and got great coverage for her role in the fastest skater competition. Can you take us through kind of that sort of experience for Kendall and, and for some of the other participants in the skills competition? Yeah, so it all it all seemed pretty organic. Like they you know there were women invited to 
participate in the event and promote uh, a women's series between the U.S. team and the, and the, the Canadian team. Uh, they were there to sort of, um, I guess, uh, be the first ones through each skill and I guess showcase it and, and show to the fans, oh, this is how it's going to go, and I guess show to the, to the NHRs as well, like this is how you do it. Um, and then Nathan McKinnon was hurt, so he had to bow out of the fastest skater, and Kendall Coyne is like one of the fastest female hockey players out there, so it was a no-brainer to, to include her officially in the event, and it was you know, obviously great PR for the NHL just at that standpoint. And then when the, the actual event goes, uh, she's blazing fast and ripping around each corner and beats Clayton Keller, an NHLer. And, you know, it's not it's not even like, you know, Keller wasn't, maybe he wasn't trying 100%, but it was more like you're watching Kendall Coyne, you're like, this is a legitimately fast hockey player. It doesn't matter if she finished last by five seconds. Like, you could just tell. The eye test uh, matched what the what the uh, the actual stats were, right? So it was it was good in that sense, uh, you know, just watching it and, and it being a story. And then afterwards, I think, is, was the icing on the cake where she, you know, there was a huge media scrum as, as expected because it was a good story. And, and it was just, you know, it was something that people didn't necessarily think uh, would unfold coming into the weekend. And, uh, and she was just a rock star in that scrum, though, just completely owning the fact that there's girls at home watching and going, oh, that's really cool. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that. You know, in ten years, I'm gonna be in the All Star game. I'm gonna, you know, just, just sort of a, an empowering moment. And instead of downplaying it, or instead of just, you know, oh, it's not that big of a deal, and and that kind of language, she was just like, you know what, this is my platform, and I'm gonna, you know, be totally proud of this moment and tell girls that you can do anything you want. So I thought that was cool because it translates outside of hockey, right? So that was probably the story of the weekend. And then you add in. Uh, Brianna Decker uh, being involved in, uh, I, I don't know if you call it a controversy, but uh, the whole thing where she was in uh, unofficially in an event and uh, supposedly it beat Leon Dreisaitl, um, and then there being sort of an argument between, well, did she actually beat him or did she you know, lose to him because there were two different videos and two different times uh, out there. So anyways, it was it was a really, you know, Important weekend, I'll say, for women in hockey, just from a standpoint of like, hey, we're not just here to, to kind of like, you know, show you guys how to do things. It's like, we can actually hang with you. And, you know, Decker's incredibly skilled, as we saw, and, and Coin is, is uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, was, it was pretty obvious that she, she can skate with the best of them. So that was cool. John Maddox with us, national hockey writer for The Score, a guy who covered the London Knights and now is off under the big lights at the NHL All-Star Game, just back from that. And one of the other things that we see at All-Star Weekend is all kinds of little toys will be unveiled. And this weekend was about the puck tracking system. Now, obviously, you weren't able to watch this on TV very well, but you were able to talk to people about the puck tracking system. Did they say anything back about it? Did it affect them at all? No, I don't think there was, like, it's not very intrusive technology. Um, I think the players are fine with it, like, like from a you know, wearable uh, perspective. I don't think it affects their lives in that sense. But they you know almost to a man there they were they were either saying uh the players were either saying i one don't know much about what's going on with player tracking like i know it's a thing and but i don't know the ins and outs of it so i i don't have much to say about it which is kind of you know i i understand but at the same time like it's this big thing that the nhl's 
and the NHLPA are involved with. I thought that there'd be more education. Um, so there's that. And then there were other guys that said, you know what, I don't really like it because, uh, you know, it just doesn't, you know, like Ryan O'Reilly, for example, uh, a bit of a slower player, um, incredibly useful and, you know, awesome the face-off draw and two-way player and can put up points, et cetera. Very good hockey player, but he's like, it just doesn't capture um, what we're feeling on the ice. It does it misses this, that, and the other thing. So he was sort of just straight up, I don't really like it. Steven Stamkos um, was, was not that interested. So um, I don't know if the players necessarily have to be totally invested in it from a, from a feelings perspective, because at the end of the day, um, it, it's to grow the game. It's for fan engagement. And also it's for coaches. And Paul Maurice talked about um, how he, if he sees it as an incredible teaching tool um, of gathering information and, and disseminating it and being able to talk to his players about certain small things in their game that he that the video might not pick up or that his eyes might not pick up. So there were different views uh, scattered throughout uh, the coaches, the players. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's probably going to come down to fans and how they uh, get involved with it, how uh, they soak it up. Or as we saw on Sunday uh, with the NBC feed, which apparently was, was a, more of a testing grounds. Uh, they were throwing a lot at the wall and seeing what's, what stuck. Um, it was very busy, and then there was a lot of stuff that wasn't really useful. You know, they had sort of name tags over the players' heads, which just seems to be unnecessary. Uh, the speed, which I don't find all that interesting, um, unless it's, you know, on a replay and you can really kind of see the, the acceleration. Um, so I'd say it was like, it's not like we were going to judge player and puck tracking off one all-star weekend, but I wouldn't say it was like a, a great success from a, a PR perspective. A lot of people on Twitter thought it was, it was, it was kind of lame. And then maybe, maybe it's because it's the all-star game and guys aren't, you know, fully engaged in the full game. And, and we won't see sort of the, the, the real product till it comes next season. But it was, uh, it was, it was nice that they unveiled it. It's nice that it's coming. And I think there's a, a lot of value in it, but this weekend wasn't necessarily a, a banner weekend for player and puck tracking. Great point. Okay, one last thing. You got to see Gritty up close. What's Gritty like up close? Uh, he's he's everything you you think and more. The funny thing is, is I, you know, you see him on social media. You hear about him from I don't know people somewhat related to the Flyers, and and they talk about him. Oh, he's great. He's great. And then you see him, and he's like, you know, just blazing uh, down the ice during like the fastest skater for mascots. He has an actual good stride. He's like scoring in the mascot hockey game. He's yucking it up with little kids constantly. Like, he's just a ball of energy. Um, and so I, I was expecting, you know, a little downtime when you're watching him from afar, but he's just, like, totally owning it. And it's the funniest thing, right, because usually these viral moments or these viral people or whatever he is, a Muppet, uh, they usually fade away, right? It's like it gets old quickly. I don't think Gritty's getting old. Like, they're totally owning it there in Philadelphia and just continuing to push out content. And I think it's... It's still charming. Like he's super scary, but he's also cuddly and like I don't know. There's there's a lot going on there that that will draw eyeballs and and I was I was impressed close up. Wow. Overall impressions? Impressed at the All Star Weekend? Yeah, you know what? It's it's a it's a kids event at the end of the day, and and for sponsors too. A lot of uh, people fly in for meetings, and uh, the NHL likes to put on a good show in terms of uh, schmoozing. Um, and yeah, so it's not like my cup of tea in terms of. You know the actual skills and 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 three on three tournament just because it's you know I like to see real hockey, 
but if you're a if you're a kid, I mean, it's perfect. And the mascots are are bouncing around everywhere, every every corner you turn around. Um, there's a great fan festival. So I thought San Jose did a pretty good job. I don't have anything to compare it to in person because it was my first one. But um, overall impressions, I, I give them, you know, somewhere in the A A minus uh, area of, of of the grading uh, sort of scale. Good, good. Well, John, great to have you back on Eastern Time, and we'll look forward to everything you write in the future. All right, thanks, Mike. Thanks uh, for having me on, and uh, nice to chat. Great chatting with you. John Mattis used to cover the Knights, and now he is the national hockey writer for the score and is heading here, there, and all over the place. So lots of great things to come out of All-Star Weekend, and I really believe they did a good job not making it just about the All-Star Game. Know what else happened this weekend? The NFL's All-Star Game. Yeah. Any takeaways from that? Anybody even know that that was happening unless you happen to stumble upon it? No, because that's all they make it about. Oh, well, there's a skills competition. Mm, yeah, okay. The NFL All-Star Game, the Pro Bowl, it just it, it, can't, it can't be anything, so the NFL just lets it be what it is. You can't make football. I mean, they talk about hockey not being much. You turn it into a three-on-three tournament, at least it's better. They've done a very good job of that. The NFL, you can't be football and bring in – the best players who aren't playing in the Super Bowl and have it work. It's just not going to because it's not football. Nobody's going to smash mouth anybody. They've got to go to a beach and make it seven on seven flag. That's what they've got to do. They had their little flag football competition as well. So, I, I mean, they add in other things. But I think the NHL this weekend really hit a new level for what it has been doing. We'll be back with one last story next on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. A story before we go. News is coming up. Major development expected in the Bruce MacArthur case tomorrow. That's something to keep your ear on. But a story before we go, a crowdfunding site has been set up by some people from Finland. They're the Finland's Melting Ice Organization. Now, they need to raise, I think it's somewhere around $800,000, but they want to get enough money so that they can carve the face of Donald Trump into a glacier in the Arctic Ocean to show that, yeah, uh, climate change is a thing. Keep your eye on that. They need 800000 That's tough. Thanks to Christian Devino for his help today. We do have news coming up with Matt Trevithick and with Jacqueline LaBelle. This has been London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL.